God calls Christians to participate in his redemptive mission in every sphere of life. Every corner, every inch of society can flourish as God intends, and Christians of any vocation can become agents of flourishing. Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm quoting from the publicity for a new IVP book by Amy Sherman called Agents of Flourishing, Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society. Amy directs the Sagamore Institute Center on Faith in Communities in Indianapolis, Indiana in the States, which trains and consults with faith-based social service providers and religious congregations desiring to invest more effectively in their neighborhoods. And for those of us who've been trying to invest in our neighborhoods for years, this is a fascinating read. Amy joins me now from the States. Hi, Amy. Hello, good to be with you. Oh, thank you for joining us. Now, why is mission not an option for our churches? Well, I guess because Jesus said, love your neighbor. Uh, And I guess because uh, even before then, uh, God has been on a mission. Um, The Bible really tells the story of God's mission in the world. God created a world of shalom and human sinfulness Uh, broke that and tainted that and corrupted that. And God has been on a mission to get things back on track uh, ever since. And he invites us to participate in his mission. Now, how have churches in the States begun to work in their communities and their neighborhoods? Well, through all kinds of different ways. Um, In the book, I like to talk about community flourishing as a very sort of holistic and comprehensive way of, of thinking about the different dimensions of our community life, dimensions of uh, the good, the true, the beautiful, the just, the prosperous, and the sustainable. And although, unfortunately, there are certainly many churches that are not very involved in contributing uh, to the strengthening of those different dimensions of their community's lives, um, I was encouraged by uh, finding some some uh, good stories of what Christians are up to uh, today in each of those different realms. And I certainly was very encouraged um, by the historical record of how the church throughout the ages has been involved in bringing about flourishing in these different realms of society. Yes, we're going to come on and talk about that, that history, which is fascinating. Um, and the, the six areas of or arenas of civili- civilizational life, I think you, you call them in the book. But first of all, can we talk about the exile that people feel we're currently living in? In, in what senses are we living, I suppose, in an exilic position in, a, in a, this post-Christian culture? We, a lot of us feel as though we're, we're exiles in this culture. Why right, right. Well, of course, we're, we're exiles at an even more fundamental level, right? Uh, we're, we're exiles really from the all of humankind is exiled because we are exiled from the garden, from God's original intentions of, of Shalom. Um, and then, of course, as um, Christ followers, we feel a sense of exile and we are identified uh, by the Lord uh, as as being exiles and strangers because of the ways in which we are trying to live as citizens of heaven while we are still here, citizens on earth, looking for that that other city, that that better city, as it's referred to in the New Testament. Um, but I think that with the with the the sense of dislocation that Christians in the West have, the the idea that we have that that somehow 
culturally, the church was at one point more in the center and is now more at the margins. Um, this, this causes us to feel a, a sense of exile and, and dislocation. And with the developments of, of a variety of you know, secular uh, philosophies and new age philosophies and the rest of it, we have this sense that, that, that we as Christ followers uh, hold to certain rather foundational convictions, convictions about God, about human nature, uh, about the nature of, of justice, um, and, these, and these other sort of very basic convictions and yet we feel as though those sentiments are unintelligible uh, to, to our fellow citizens. Not that they just disagree with them, but that they don't even, they, they sort of look at us like, what? Uh, and so all of that contributes, I think, to a very, uh, a very profound sense of, of, of exile. Mm. How can the church successfully re-engage the world then? Well, I think that um, we have to resist certain temptations that that come with this sense of exile, right? Um, one of those temptations is what some folks have called a sort of fortressing response, right? So we feel as though we are so different from the world. Uh, we sense the hostility of the world. We, we have that sense of being unintelligible by the word. Therefore, we will withdraw. We'll, uh, you know, we'll put up the barricades and we'll just sort of uh, withdraw from withdraw from society and, and be in our holy huddle. And I, I think I can understand that temptation, but I don't think that's what the Lord is calling to us. An another temptation kind of from the other end of the spectrum, you might say, is is more of a feisty uh, domination paradigm where it's like, oh, well, we're going to take back our place. Yes, we've been pushed out of the margin and and we are going to aggressively insist upon reclaiming uh, that, that place at the center. But I think that that also is a strategy that has too much confidence, frankly, in the ways of politics, in the ways of, of secular power and influence uh, that, that really don't align very faithfully to, to the way of the cross. Um, and and yet at the same time, we don't want to just sort of, you know, shrug our shoulders and and give up and and just sort of drift along in an accommodation to to the culture because the Christian doctrine, of course, teaches us also to be to be salt and light, to be distinct. So I think what we have to do um, is bring bring ourselves to this point of constructive engagement to this point of what some have called faithful presence, to this point of uh, an incarnational uh, a posture, where we basically say we are going to try to live holy and distinctive lives that really are countercultural in the ways that we, as Christ followers, uh, navigate, for example, money, sex, and power, really begin to live quite differently on those things than the way the world does. And in that way, retain our saltiness and at the same time, actively engage in meeting needs, moving towards the vulnerable, moving towards people who, who don't agree with us and yet sacrificially loving those 
including those neighbors who disdain, frankly, um, our convictions. So it's that it's that balance of retaining that sense of of holiness and 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 uh, cultural distinctiveness, while pairing that with this cross-centered, lay your lives down generously and sacrificially for your neighbor. Yeah, I wonder what Christianity still has to offer society in in terms of good. The good we're going to come on and look at these six arenas of civilizational life. But what what can Christianity still offer society? Do you think? Well, the realm of the the good um, in this um, paradigm of the good, the true, the beautiful, the just, the well-ordered, and the prosperous, and the sustainable, um, which is a, a paradigm that I can't take credit for. It actually was developed by some uh, scholars uh, with the Thriving City Group. The, the good is the realm of social mores and, and social uh, ethics. Um, and I think that, that Christianity brings certain very foundational uh, convictions or principles to to that arena, principles rooted in the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of all human life, the the notion of the Imago Dei, that every human person is stamped with the dignity uh, of being made in the image uh, of God, and principles about uh, how we think about the vulnerable and our responsibilities uh, towards towards the vulnerable, so we 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 come into the conversation, so to speak, about what is the good with certain fundamental ideas that we then have to demonstrate in very real practice. And the church historic demonstrated those principles in some ways that really were quite countercultural. So, for example, in the in the early church period. The church honored widows, whereas Roman culture um, really looked down upon them. Widows were second-class citizens. The early church honored uh, children as as persons and uh, rescued uh, abandoned children, adopted unwanted children, talked about the importance of parenting, whereas uh, well-to-do Romans would leave the parenting, uh, you know, to the to the to the servants. So what, what, what we contribute, I think, to the good are both really important ideas about human nature, about the sanctity of marriage, um, about the dignity of all persons, um, but, but not just ideas, but then practices that really incarnate um, and demonstrate those mm. those convictions. Well, let's come and look at, on some of these arenas, if we may. We mentioned the family and the countercultural view of children, parenting, marriage, family, all radical in comparison with the Roman Empire and the, and the classical world. But what has Christianity's contribution been in the area of knowledge, for example, and human learning? This was a particularly um, interesting part of my uh, research because I didn't uh, know a lot um, about the ways in which uh, Christians have been such champions of uh, education and champions of the intellectual pursuits and and the scientific pursuits. So what what we see is, is this really uh, interesting connection, for example, between Christianity, the rise of Christianity, and the rise of literacy. Um, Christians, of course, are people of the book, 
and so Christians have been eager to teach people how to read uh, so that new followers of Christ could immerse themselves in the, in the word of God and find that nourishment for their own uh, discipleships. I did not know, for example, that the reformers were the Protestant reformers of the 16th century were were champions of of education, oh, yes. and in fact, Martin Luther yep. uh, is credited with being among the first to champion uh, ideas about public education, including the education of girls. Um, mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. that was very uh, yes, that was did. very ex mm -hmm. exciting. And then you think about in the Renaissance period. You know, we have this sense, I think, of of the Renaissance as being a a rather sort of the beginning of a more secular age and and there are ways in which that is that is accurate but it's also true that some of the most well-known and and well-respected uh, scientists and inventors and and discoverers uh, of the renaissance period uh, people like kepler or copernicus or galileo or pascal these were all christ followers um so uh, christianity has a has a robust history of uh, being intellectually curious and not being afraid of the life of the mind and in fact making investments in, in education some historians would even argue that uh that that the sort of the early genesis of the modern university uh is a heritage of of christianity mm, um, with mm. the development mm. uh you know in the medieval period yes, uh, yes. so so christianity has, has made very important contributions What's the church's role been in the arts, for example? This again was um, an, an arena for uh, for new discovery for me uh, personally. I, I am not an artist. Uh, I can't even draw a stick figure. Not <laughs> um, I don't worry. You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> but here again, we see uh, we see this combination again. I think of uh, a certain degree of thought leadership, so to speak. Uh, in this realm, and, and then also a degree of uh, of concrete action. So let me let me give you uh, some some examples. So in, in terms of thought leadership, um, the idea of God as the beautiful, not only as God the true <laughs> and the good, but God the beautiful, that that God in His very being is beauty. Uh, and that the creation is not only good, you know, that phrase in Hebrew, it is good, it is good. Um, it can be translated, uh, it is beautiful. Uh, there, there's an interesting sort of linguistic association there with the with the idea of, of beauty. And of course, the, the, the scriptures themselves are, are artistic, right? Uh, we see these different genres. We have prose, of course, um, but then you also have song. And you have poetry, and and uh, so we we see this affirmation of beauty. We see this notion that God has created us not only as thinking beings, not only as uh, working uh, beings, not only as loving relational beings, but as making beings. That God Himself is a creator. We are creative. Uh, and God loves beauty. I mean, you can't read the instructions in the Old Testament about how the gar priestly garments should be made or how the tabernacle was supposed to look. You, you just can't read those 
those accounts without coming to the conclusion, God is into more than just function. <laughs> yes, he is. God is into beauty. He, he oh, yes. wanted these things mm. to be to be very beautiful. Mm. So in all those ways, I think Christians have been uh, uh, strong uh, af- uh, affirmers of of the value and the significance, the essentialness, to make up a word, of, of beauty. Um, and then, of course, this be- this began to be practiced because you had uh, the church in the medieval period uh, becoming the premier patron of the arts, uh, getting behind the architects, getting behind uh, the great artists, uh, getting behind the great uh, musicians. Uh, and so, so much of, of Western art and Western history owes so much to religious institutions and religious uh, patronage. Yes. Well, how can churches, we're running out of time, but how can churches help revitalize urban centers and communities? I mean, you have a section of this in the book, and I've seen this done to great effect in uh, areas around the church which have been neglected in communities in New Zealand, where churches have come in and decided they're going to beautify, plant a garden, put beautiful paintings on the walls and generally beautify their surroundings. Yes, yes. Um, Well, again, I think uh, when Christians really embrace what we might call a theology of place, um, where we say place actually matters and the built environment uh, matters, then we begin to recognize that um, as we build our places and spaces, um, we want to do that in ways that do really contribute to human uh, flourishing. And I think we do that in a whole variety of ways. We, we do that in, in very practical ways in terms of uh, literally the design of our buildings and our campuses, right, to make them as human-centered and, and full of light uh, and, and full of beauty, uh, as full of, of a vibe of hospitality and openness and, and welcome, uh, as amenable to community and and you know social gatherings uh, as possible. So so literally our architecture <laughs> and our design uh, matters. Um, but then also um, really thinking uh, about the economic uplift uh, of our of our communities and what our role as uh, Christians uh, is in thinking about how can we contribute we are an economic actor in our in our communities we spend money <laughs> we teach people about how to think about money and we have the opportunity uh, as believers to invest um, in the economic flourishing uh, of our communities and that brings a certain amount of uh, of uplift to our communities uh, as well so in in both of those ways i think we really can contribute to the flourishing uh, of our urban centres. One of the other areas you write about um, passionately in the book is uh, restorative justice and the church's contribution to justice and a well-ordered society through the centuries. But how are you seeing churches work, say, with prison inmates and in the whole area of restorative justice in the States at the moment? Uh, in the book, I have a chapter on a, on a lovely church uh, in Michigan uh, that for at least 25 years uh, has been very, very involved uh, in uh, teaching about restorative justice, advocating restorative justice principles uh, in the public square. So actually advocating for, um, you know, new kinds of uh, laws and uh, new kinds of sentencing, 
regulations, changes in how juvenile offenders uh, are, are dealt with uh, and, and the like. But also this church has been very practically involved inside prisons. And so this was a church that actually helped Christian inmates form a church behind bars. Mm. Uh, and that church uh, celebration fellowship has now become quite a vibrant uh, behind the bars community of, of believers. And this church has also really put its money where its mouth is in terms of welcoming uh, returning citizens uh, and helping those who uh, have come back to society out of prison to get reengaged. So um, coming alongside them uh, to help them with housing, to help them with furthering their education, reconciling with their uh, families, um, finding job opportunities. So it's a very, I, I love how this church is so holistically involved. They're involved in that policy uh, and advocacy uh, area. They're involved right inside the prisons, trying to actually make prison life uh, better. Uh, they are also, uh, you know, really trying to help the church recognize the dignity, again, of all people, including those who have come back from prison. Mm -hmm. uh, and to say these are people that God loves uh, and we are not going to judge them by the worst thing they've ever done. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be judged by the worst thing we've ever been ever done. And we are going to receive them with love. Uh, and we are going to seek to assist them. Amy, where can people find you on the net? Where can people find the Sagamore Institute? How do they get involved with what, what all the work you're doing? Uh, well, I believe you can just go to the Sagamore Institute's website, which is just, I believe, uh, www.sagamoreinstitute.org. And uh, within our website, uh, you'll find a section called the Center on Faith in Communities. And that's the center that I direct and we actually have a quarterly newsletter um, that people can sign up for uh, that talks a little bit about our various research projects and and uh, showcases inspirational stories about what the churches are doing today. Awesome. Sounds wonderful. The book by IVP InterVarsity Press America, book by Amy Sherman, is called Agents of Flourishing, Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society. Amy directs the Sagamore Institute Center on Faith in Communities in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Amy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.